All right. Thank you for being here. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14 today. So let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our sermon series through the gospel of Mark, intentionally limiting ourselves to Mark's voice, which is so different than the other Gospels in many ways, maybe one of the earlier um, gospel accounts written. You think about John, which might have been written as many as 30 years after Jesus, uh, maybe as much as 50 years after Jesus's resurrection. Um, Mark might have been one of the earliest gospel accounts. And so Mark's gospel is unique. Uh, Often Matthew and Luke, their gospel accounts reflect and share material that Mark uses as well. Uh, we call these the synoptic gospels, a, two, two, a compound word there, soon and optic, with one view, uh, s- describing how Matthew and Luke might have taken a lot of their material through this one view of the gospel of Mark, a very important gospel. And we have limited our uh, attention and our scope to the gospel of Mark and hearing the gospel through his account. And we have worked our way all the way through. Matter of fact, my notes show that this is the 42nd sermon uh, through the Gospel of Mark, and we're not even uh, at the end yet. We still have two chapters. But as we get to this point in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, um, typically you would find this material preached around Easter, right? This is the kind of Easter sermon series that you would expect. And so it's okay for us to take our attention out of that Easter mindset and to work a little bit slower and a little bit more closely looking in greater detail uh, the gospel account as it uh, as we approach the crucifixion, the betrayal, um, the the trials, the Last Supper, all of these parts. We're just zooming in and we're looking at it in greater detail. Thank you for the song selection there and appreciate the way that song helps us to prepare our hearts for the word. And if you're not prepared enough, let me say a prayer over our time and the message today. Lord Jesus, worship is a choice. It's not dependent on an environment. It's not dependent on the perfect conditions. Worship happens all the time. We give our affection. We give our attention. We give our finances. We give our heart to lesser things all the time. And that is act of worship. In this moment, in this time here this morning, we choose to worship you, the exalted Jesus Christ risen from the grave. We thank you that you promise to dwell with the worship of your people, that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you promise to be with us. And so here we are, imperfect, broken, sinful people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, gathering together in your name in hopes that you would not pass us by. As Abraham cried to the angel of the Lord with the two angels accompanying him in Genesis. On their way to Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass me by. That's our prayer today, Lord. As Elijah in the showdown versus the prophets of Baal prepared the altar, prepared the wood, he prepared everything. And the only thing he couldn't provide is what you promised 
to provide, and that was the fire that consumed the altar and the sacrifice on the altar. Our prayer today is that we have prepared everything as best as we could in a makeshift worship service in a parking lot with bugs chirping loudly. We have prepared it, and it's our prayer that you would bring fire from heaven, that we may experience your presence. As Moses prayed in Exodus 34, saying, Now show me your glory, and you hid him in the cleft of a rock as your glory passed by. The closest we can get is the opening of your word in the presence of biblical community and people who know us and love us and love you who fear your name and who are here to hear a word from you. Our prayer is that of Moses, that you would show us your glory in the preaching of your word. And we thank you that you promised to do that because you promised in Isaiah to send out your word to accomplish the purpose that you have for it. As the rain and the snow waters the earth, so also your word proceeds to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. I thank you most importantly that your word and its power is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on how well we sing. It's not dependent on how well we gather. It only depends on your Holy Spirit illuminating and giving your word power that it may change our lives, that we may be convicted of our sin, that we may be sanctified, that we may grow deeper and stronger in our faith and our love for you. The greatest commandment is that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray that you would make it so. We pray that you would kindle a deeper fire and love for you in our hearts. For many here, their faith may be hanging on by a thread. I thank you that your word says, a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. I thank you that you will not crush us completely. We thank you that you will foster our faith and grow us and fan it into flame. Help us to do our part, Lord Jesus, by give us, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see who you are through your word today. Use this message and this passage for your glory and for your majesty. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, our text today is Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 12 only through 16, just a handful of verses. We are not going to cover 17 through 21. We'll cover that next week, and then the week following, we'll look at the institution of the Lord's Supper. But today, we're just going to limit our attention to Mark 12, 14, verses 12 through 16. And so let's read that together. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples. John tells us that it is Peter and John that Jesus sends. He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out 
and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the, fast, the Passover. When you think about the attention given to the Passover and its preparation, the attention given to uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Scripture, a very important feast, a very important festival that Jews even today celebrate. Um, one of the families that uh, we play baseball with in our, our youth, our local youth league, um, uh, one of the wives of, of uh, one of the coaches is a Jewish woman from Beersheba, and during innings, in between innings, I'm often studying the text and I'll just go over and I'll ask Elisa, hey, what does this mean and what's this about? And for the last few years, she has given me incredible insight into Jewish culture and into Israelite practice. And uh, this weekend I asked her, I said, what's, what's this about, the Feast of Unleavened Bread? And I knew from books and commentaries and things like that, but, but I want to know from her perspective. And, and she said, uh, her, every time I ask her these questions, she just loves it. She lights up. She can't wait to talk about the ways in which it's celebrated. Matter of fact, a few weeks ago, she prepared a, a big dinner for our family, a traditional Shabbat dinner. Uh, and we went over and we enjoyed um, her talking about and describing all these things. But, but when it comes to the feast of the first day of unleavened bread, she began to describe all that this festival meant and all that took place. And it gave, us, gave me great insight and the longer we talked and the more I looked into it, the more I saw the, the larger plan of redemption history unfolding. Some of these festivals, some of these rituals, some of these commandments were set in stone 1,500 years before Jesus ever came into the world. Some of these things that foreshadow the cross and the uh, act of redemptive history were set in place long before. And so I feel compelled at this point in the book of Mark to remind us of the divine plan of redemption. Maybe it's because I'm overwhelmed as we look at these chapters and I see all of the uh, details that had to go exactly right for the ultimate Passover lamb to be crucified and to give his life at exactly the ninth hour at three o'clock in the afternoon on that Friday. For that to happen was absolutely miraculous. Considering that his enemies, the ones who wanted him dead, the ones who wanted to arrest him, their only goal was, repeated over and over, not during the festival, lest there be an uproar from the crowd. We want him to die. We want to arrest him. We want him out of the picture. But it can't happen here. And it can't happen now. It has to happen at another time and another place, lest there be an uproar. And we, we um, mess up the delicate balance of the Roman occupying army tension with the Jewish people at that time. And yet God made it happen in such a way that it happened at exactly the right time, not just for that time and for that culture and for their day, but also to fulfill the larger plan of redemptive history. I'm overwhelmed by the details and all of the things that had to take place and all the minutiae. You think about all the attempts on Jesus' life, both as a baby uh, and through the temptation of Jesus where Satan tempted him to throw himself off the temple. Then um, all the times where um, Jesus, even when he preached in his own hometown of Nazareth, they rejected him as the Messiah. They took him to the precipice of the mountain in order to throw him off. And Jesus walked right through their midst as though they could not touch him. Jesus was bulletproof until the exact moment 
Even at the moment of the crucifixion, crucifixion was this brutal, torturous death where often the victim would die from asphyxiation. He would, he would, his lungs would fill with fluid and he would not be able to breathe. But the fact that at three o'clock at the exact hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and breathed his last. The fact that he had enough oxygen and capacity in his lungs to breathe and cry out, which is what was so startling to those around him, there would not be enough breath for a person to cry out in the way he did and giving up his last breath at exactly the right moment in the exact time that the South Kingdom part of Israel would be killing their Passover lamb for the sins of the nation. I'm compelled to focus on the fact that Jesus completely and perfectly fulfilled the plan of redemption and only God could have made it happen that way with all the details. Really, my hope for you in the midst of this message in the next um, bit of time that we have together, my hope and purpose for you in this sermon is that your faith would be increased and would strengthen. And some of you, over the last six months, may have faced some of the most difficult times in your walk with Jesus. You may have faced difficult trials and struggles, personal doubts, uh, difficulties with temptation and sin. And many of you feel like your faith is wavering and that it's not strong enough and that you are on the verge of turning away from the Lord. And that even just being here together took a lot of effort and energy and sacrifice. Maybe your faith has dwindled. Maybe it is not growing. Maybe you are struggling. My prayerful hope for you in this message is that your faith would increase and be strengthened. That you would be challenged today to fan what exists back into flame, that you would walk by faith and not by sight. No better way to do that than to focus on Jesus and his word together in biblical community. So as we focus our attention over the next few weeks on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, it's really important that we understand and that we hammer down this conviction that Jesus's death on the cross was always the plan of God. It was not plan B, it was not plan C, it was not plan D or Z. It was always God's plan to smite him and to crush him. It was always God's plan that Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, would be a substitutionary, sacrificial death in our place. The world has tried to make sense of Jesus' death in a number of ways. Liberal theology has always denied substitutionary atonement. That is that Jesus died in place of sinners like you and I. Liberal theology often describes Jesus' death not as substitutionary, but as a moral example. What a guy Jesus was, willing to sacrifice himself so that other people may experience happiness and joy and life. And we should follow his example of living an unselfish life so that other people can benefit from our sacrifice. All the while denying the fact that Jesus's death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God that I rightly deserved. Do you understand that? Do you understand and view yourself as a sinner who deserves God's perfect wrath 
and that Jesus stepped in place of that so that you and I don't have to experience death and punishment for our sins. I'm struck as I go through my devotions over the last few weeks about how many times Jesus was presented with a paralytic or with a blind person or with someone who needed healing. And sometimes the first thing Jesus said was, your sins are forgiven. And every time I look at that, I think, don't you understand, Jesus? They didn't come to you to have their sins forgiven. They came to you because of a physical need. Oftentimes, we come to Jesus with a need that is not our greatest need. According to the gospel, your greatest need, my greatest need, is the forgiveness of sins. Our greatest need is not healing. Our greatest need is not um, something to make our life a little better. Our greatest need is to see ourselves rightly as God sees us and to receive the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus' death on the cross was. It was a, a substitution for us. And this wasn't an accident. It's the perfect plan of God from the very beginning. Consider Acts 2.23. After the resurrection, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples are preaching about Jesus. And in Acts 2.23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is acknowledging that Jesus died not by accident, but by the exact knowledge and foreknowledge and predestination of God. In Acts 4, 27 through 28, continuing in their onslaught against the Jewish officials and religious leaders, Peter says, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Peter is praying this in the gathering of disciples. The cross is not an accident. It happened in just the way that God wanted it. John MacArthur describes it this way, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has always been the focal point of Christianity. It's the heart of salvation, the key reality of the gospel, and the central theme of the entire Bible. It's the apex of redemptive history, the ratification of the new covenant and the single atonement for sin, the satisfaction of divine justice, and the propitiation of holy wrath the epitome of sovereign love and grace. The necessary object, Jesus, is the necessary object of saving faith. And the only hope of eternal life. Because of the importance of the cross, it's previewed in the garden when God sacrificed an innocent animal to cover over the sin, naked and shamed Adam and Eve. The cross is previewed in the promise, in the promise moments after the fall and the curse when God reveals that there would come a man one day born of a woman who would be wounded by Satan, but in the process of being wounded by Satan would crush the serpent's head. The cross is previewed in the ark that saved eight souls. The cross is seen in the sacrificial animal when Abraham traveled up to Mount Moriah, this very mount of crucifixion, hundreds of thousands of years earlier when Abraham took his son up there and placed his son Isaac on the altar and could not find a substitute. And as Isaac looked at his father and said, you know, what's going to happen here? Jesus said, uh, Abraham said, God will himself provide the substitute. 
And he looked over and there was a ram caught in a thicket and he laid that ram as a substitute on the altar. It happened right here, folks, in this Jerusalem area. The cross was foreshadowed then. The cross can be seen vividly in all of the Passover lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt in 1500 thereabouts, whose death and blood protected the inhabitant of that home from the death angel who passed over them. Over and over again, the cross has been previewed and foreshadowed all throughout Scripture. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus and identified him as the Messiah, what did he say? This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so right here, when the disciples are asking Jesus, where would you have us go and prepare for the Passover? Do you see how this is unfolding according to the perfect plan of God? Jesus is the Passover lamb. And they're about to celebrate the Passover where the perfect spotless lamb would be sacrificed so that the angel of death would pass over them so that they could experience life while that lamb experiences death. This is all happening live in the moment. I can't think of a better way or place to experience a more painful place, sure, but what vivid detail they are getting to witness not just the Passover festival, not just the feast, but getting to experience Jesus himself, the perfect Passover lamb, getting ready. So the disciples ask him on the first day of unleavened bread. Now during the festival of unleavened bread, uh, Jewish families will cleanse their entire house of all yeast the day before. Even today, they'll go through, if you, if you were a Gentile living in Israel, probably the best time for you to buy bread is the day before the Passover feast. They're clearing out everything. They have to burn the yeast outside. Uh, they have to completely cleanse. Some families will even have special dishes that have never had bread or yeast on them that they will pull out just for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days they eat uh, matzah bread, bread without yeast that doesn't rise. And it was to commemorate the fact that God told them to get out of Egypt. Prepare this festival, prepare this feast in haste because quickly, quickly you will have to leave and you will have to be on the run and this will be your um, immediate flight from Egypt and in this way you'll plunder Egypt. They will ask you to leave and they'll give you gold and they'll give you silver, they'll give you their treasures so that you can get out of Egypt quickly. This is the way that I will deliver you. And uh, Israelites celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in this way to this day to commemorate that. So on the first day of the seven-day festival, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, and there were two days that they would celebrate and sacrifice the Passover lamb. I mentioned it earlier, in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee area, where a different group of um, Israelites, formerly uh, Gentiles or uh, Samaritans or others in the northern part of Israel, they would sacrifice on the 14th day of Nisan, the first uh, of the month, the first month of the year. They would sacrifice on that Thursday. And so their Passover lambs had to be taken into the temple where a priest would supervise, and at 3 o'clock they would kill their Passover lamb. Those in the southern part of the kingdom would do it on the Friday at 3 o'clock 
when Jesus actually breathed his last. But in the northern part, they would sacrifice the Passover lamb on that Thursday. And so Jesus' disciples are asking him, they're all from Galilee, all except for one, right? Which is the one who's not from Galilee? It's Judas. Judas, the betrayer, is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus in private, away from the crowds. And this might have been the perfect opportunity for Judas during the privacy of the Passover to have Jesus betrayed, but it couldn't happen that way. Jesus prepares on this Thursday. And the Passover preparations would have taken all day. Peter and John are chosen to go and prepare the Passover. And there was a lot to do. They had to, the lamb was the centerpiece of this Passover meal. And Israelite families who made the pilgrimage would have to purchase their lamb by the 10th day of the first month, four days before the Passover. And it had to be unblemished. And they had to take it into the temple to secure it. They had to, uh, the father or the head of the family would uh, um, go out and he would, um, in representation for the family around three o'clock would um, go into the temple under the supervision of the priests <clears throat> he would slaughter the lamb catch the blood in a basin the priest would take the blood of that lamb and place it at the base of the altar and then the family representative would skin the lamb remove all the fat and kidneys so they could be placed on the altar and burned then he would take the lamb and carry it back to his home and they would prepare it uh, in addition to uh, bitter herbs unleavened bread, a fruit and nut paste, a raw vegetable dipped in tart dressing. All these things had to be gathered and prepared as well as wine that needed to be secured. The whole room had to be prepared. Everyone, everything had to happen in just a, a special way so that they could fulfill the Passover feast. Verse 13 says that he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. It's unusual because this would have normally been a, a servant's job or a, a woman's job. <clears throat> the fact that it's this man carrying a jar of water is one clue that would help them distinguish from the hundreds of other people carrying jars of water. Jesus tells Peter and John to follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The fact that Jesus tells him to use the word teacher, Jesus had been teaching in the temple all week long. The teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And this man will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. When you look at this passage, there are two possibilities. Commentators are kind of divided about which is the reality. But let me just present to you both, and I want to know how you read it. Scenario one is that Jesus has been in and out of Jerusalem all his life, every year. And thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites are traveling from all over the world to come into Jerusalem for this festival. To find a place in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover was incredibly difficult. It could be that this was all prearranged. That Jesus knew this 
person, that he had been to this room before, that the details of this arrangement had already been established through a verbal conversation or through an envoy, but that Jesus had arranged all of these details in advance, arranging up to the point to send the man to carry the jar of water, to be at a certain place, so that the two disciples knew that, that this could have been prearranged in such a way that it would avoid detection by those who are trying to kill and arrest Jesus. That's one way that we can read this passage, is that Jesus had prearranged all of these details in advance. He trusted two of his disciples, Peter and John, and as a result of all these prearrangements, Jesus had a long-standing relationship, and this owner knew that this was going to happen. That's one scenario. The second scenario are that these two vo uh, verses here, where Jesus gives these detailed instructions to his disciples, present to us this unseen spiritual reality that Jesus has a foreknowledge of the way things are going to unfold, and as he is walking by the Spirit... This is a supernatural series of events that allow for the preparations to be made in just the exact way, in just the unfolding way, so that Jesus and his disciples can have a secure place for the upper room discourse. Now, we don't understand the upper room discourse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only give us a dozen verses. Maybe Matthew gives us 30 verses about what happens here. John gives us almost five full chapters. John 13 through the high priestly prayer in John 17, of all that Jesus is teaching and all that Jesus is doing, he's washing their feet, he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he's teaching them about readiness and preparedness, he's doing all these things, he's going to pray over them. All through John, we see Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, and when he gets to the upper room, John 13 says, the hour of my departure has come. And he gives five chapters to this upper room discourse that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen next. It's a very important night. So in order for all that to happen, when the disciples say, where do you want us to go and prepare for the Passover? This is an important night for Jesus. And for all the details to arrange in such a way that they're able to go and prepare and that the upper room is furnished and ready represents a miracle of God showing his hand of providence all through that. Go into the city. No details, no specific instructions. Just go into the city. A quarter of a million people live in Jerusalem. There were six or more gates and entry points into this walled city. Go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water. What, what a, there, there would have been water being carried everywhere. It's the day of preparation. Water was a necessary ingredient for every family celebrating Passover. Follow him. I wonder, did this guy know he was being followed? <laughs> Were they just creepily kind of following behind a guy carrying water on his head, on his shoulders? Did he lead them of his own volition or did his master 
tell this guy the details. You're going to see two guys. They're going to follow you. The master of the house is the owner. Was he spiritually prepared for this moment? Did he have some sort of premonition? Did he have some sort of vision? Certainly this isn't too hard for us to imagine, right? That God could supernaturally arrange all the details and prepare all the players in this unfolding drama. When Peter owed taxes, what did Jesus tell him to do? Go out into the lake, take a hook, put it on a line, throw it in the water. The first fish you catch, what you're, what you're going to find? Two coins in its mouth. Go pay my taxes and yours. That, that's the kind of supernatural knowledge that Jesus has possessed. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus gets to know her. They start to spend time together by this well at the middle of the day. And, and Jesus is given supernatural knowledge about her life, details about her, and this proves that he's the Messiah to her. She, he says, go, go get your husband and bring him here with you so that he can hear what I have to say. And she, she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, what? You're right. I know you don't have a husband. You've had four husbands, and the guy that you're now living with isn't even your husband. You're right when you say that you have no husband. Not in a condemning way, but Jesus is revealing the fact that God has given him knowledge. She describes his supernatural knowledge saying, I can see that you're a prophet. We're waiting for the prophet. And Jesus said, I'm the one who describe that you're talking to. I am he, I'm that prophet. The fact that Jesus gives these guys details about what's going to happen demonstrates weight to me on my side that this is a supernatural event. That they're demonstrating faith, that they are trusting, not in what can be seen, but they're walking in such a way that this is a demonstration of faith. Not to sound overly spiritual, but have you ever had a premonition about a situation that actually happened by the Holy Spirit? Not just a, a weird dream or some sort of sense of deja vu, but a situation in which God revealed something to you that took place at a later situation. I mean, not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, I was given a book uh, to read on vacation about Bob Stoops, the OU football coach. And I read the whole book on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday of my time in Oklahoma. And at the end of it, I was just so encouraged by the book. I'm a fan of OU football. I read the book. It was a good book. And at the end of it, I just felt compelled to pray um, for the coach as he shared some of the difficulties of being a, a coach. It wasn't a major spiritual moment, but I just felt compelled to pray for him. I had known that he had worked with other Christian organizations in the past as a Catholic guy, and my mother had had some uh, experience with him in, in a charity event. And, and so I've, it's not the first time I've prayed for him as an individual. And by reading his book, I just felt compelled to pray for him. And then I took it a step further. At the end of the book, I thought, man, if I happen to run into him this week, I'll, I'll, I'll just try to encourage him. And so I prayed for him there in the moment, and then I, uh, I felt compelled to just to offer that opportunity to the Lord. If I happen to see him, give me a chance to encourage him. I'm not kidding. 12 hours later, I'm on a golf course with my little brother in a city of a million people, and I walk up to the, to the driving range, and standing right next to me is Bob Stoops on the driving range. 
And I just think, well, this can't be a coincidence. I mean, just 12 hours earlier, I'm saying a prayer for the guy, and I'm asking the Lord, if, if you want me to see him, and if, you, if I have an opportunity, somehow let me encourage him with the gospel, let me encourage him in his life, let me encourage him in some way. And I just right there, and right there in the moment, on the tee box, I mean, not the tee box, the driving range, and I'm sure he gets this all the time. I just introduced myself as a pastor from Philadelphia who just finished his book, and I had a few words of encouragement with him and let him know that I was praying for him. Not because he's a coach, but just as a human. Now, I don't know what to make of experiences like that. I, I'm not a, into prophecy, and I don't regularly have visions and premonitions and things like that. People can go way off the deep end in experiential kind of things like that, and they're always looking for a series of signs, and I think it's an, generally an unhealthy practice for those who go too far into prophecy prophecy. Sometimes people can carry a spiritual notebook of prophecies and neglect the Word of God, which is the prophecy. I, I am not that guy. I don't go that far. I typically need to be encouraged by the word that says, do not despise prophecies. <laughs> right? Paul gives a, a corrective. Because there are people who are so skeptical, who are so much walk by sight and not by faith, that they are so skeptical that they, they don't leave room for the Holy Spirit to work and to lead in their life. I typically am along that spectrum, rather than the spectrum that sees everything through the view of God has ordained it and it's a prophetic word and those kinds of things. I don't, I don't know how you feel about this passage. I think that Jesus understood these details and in, I think the language of Matthew and Mark and Luke in describing this situation leaned toward the fact that this is a supernatural event where the disciples are led into the unfolding plan of God. And they find, if you look at verse 16, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. I think that's more than just, I planned all this and it happened. How many times have you made plans and immediately they don't go according to plan? <laughs> Does that ever happen to anybody else? It did not happen for Jesus. And the way it didn't happen is that he was so in tune with the Holy Spirit and he was so in tune with God the Father. Remember, Philippians 2 describes Jesus as setting apart, setting aside his divinity and not leaning on his divinity, but walking in humanity with the same resources that you and I have available to us. That is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and prayer. Jesus operated in his earthly life according to those same resources that you and I have at our disposal. That's the miracle of Philippians 2. Is that One of the miracles of Philippians 2 is that Jesus operated not according to his divinity. The disciples are rewarded for their faith. They walk by faith and not by sight. What about you and I? Do you ever feel that your faith is fragile? Do you struggle in your faith? Something could go wrong for you. And in the moment of it going wrong, you throw up your hands and say, well, what's the point? Why do I even believe? If it's not going to go well for me, or if this isn't going to work out, why do, I, why do I even believe? Yeah, we do that, right? We are prone to wander. Paul 
says in Romans 7, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the fleshly, bad, sinful things that I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep doing. Paul describes it that our treasure is housed in jars of what? Jars of clay, breakable, fragile. We are prone to fall away under enough pressure and trial and difficulty of circumstances. My counseling aspect of ministry has tripled over the last six months. The number of people who need to see me or who need to see a, a biblical counselor has tripled. The number of people attending church has decreased by over 50% at this location alone, and the numbers bear out elsewhere, that under the weight of the circumstances in our current culture, people in their faith are demonstrating a fragility, a struggle, a battle. Time spent in the word, time spent in prayer, time spent in fellowship of other believers, praying with other believers, holding and being accountable to other believers, gathering in biblical community, understanding the circumstances, that makes sense, but, but as a result, the enemy is winning in many ways by isolating and dividing us so that your faith is fragile. Under the pressure in this passage and in passages coming, all of the disciples, Jesus said, are going to fall away. One of them is going to betray me. That's terrible, horrible. We're going to get to that next week. All of them are going to fall away. How's your faith today? Are you on the verge of falling away? Our faith is fragile. Our faith is fragile. It needs strengthening. And my prayer for you today is that you would strengthen your faith. A life of faith is what God has called you to. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Hebrews tells us that without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. Abraham, when God called him and told him that he would call him, it says he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that uh, it is by faith, by grace that we are saved through faith. This is not a work of yourself, lest any one of us should both boast. You and I are called to live and exercise faith. Do you walk by sight? Or do you live by faith? A life of faith is dependent, not independent. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. If you want to know how your faith is doing, faith is demonstrated through dependence. Dependence is demonstrated through prayer. How's your prayer life? Do you find yourself struggling to pray? Do you find yourself saying, I, I got this, I can handle it, I don't need prayer, I don't need God, I can do this? A life of faith is dependent. A life of faith 
is very careful to hear and respond. A life of faith wakes up and says, Lord, my day is yours. How would you lead me and guide me today? And is careful to hear clearly through the word of God. A life of faith is able to discern the lies of the enemy and knows the voice of God. I saw this maybe eight years ago. I just had a, a friction in a relationship maybe 10 years ago. I had friction in this particular relationship. And it wasn't just a momentary friction. It was the kind of, I know you don't probably struggle with this, but, but it was the kind of friction and struggle in a relationship where I found myself wishing bad for the person. I found myself a little happy when things went sideways for this person. And I wasn't happy with it, and the Lord revealed this to me, and, and I struggled with it. I really struggled with it. I prayerfully, Lord, help me get rid of this root of bitterness. Help me to make things right with this person. Help me to, to I can't operate like this. I feel myself becoming angry and judgmental and frustrated. And one day, I had this sort of knowledge that this person had stumbled, this brother in Christ had stumbled in a way that would have disqualified him and, and caused him uh, great personal pain. And I didn't know what to do with this. And finally I realized after a few days that this was not from the Lord, that this guy had not struggled and stumbled in this way, but it was a voice of the accuser. A life of faith is able to discern the voice of the accuser from the voice of God. A life of faith doesn't lean on its own understanding, but trusts in the Lord, even when the details can't be seen. A life of faith often leads us to disappointment and struggle. A life of faith can foster disappointment and discouragement when God doesn't cooperate with you, right? Have you ever presented a scenario to God and believed that he was able to make it happen? Whether it's selfish or whether it's good, doesn't matter. But if you present something to God, I want you to heal this person. And God doesn't heal that person. He says uh, all it takes is a mustard seed of faith and, and they say to this mountain, go and move and, and it'll move. And you offer to God a perfect scenario with more faith than a mustard seed. I know you can do this. I know you can heal this person. And God chooses not to. Have you ever had that experience? Where your faith is rewarded with disappointment. Oftentimes God, his will is not our will. And great faith can foster momentary disappointment until we yield our will and say, not my will, but yours be done. And maybe he chooses to heal people by taking them home and making them whole and complete rather than allowing them to endure. See, all of us will die once and our death is perfectly determined. You won't live an, a second longer than the Lord wants you to. Not one second longer. A life of faith is sacrificial. A life of faith, Proverbs tells us, is filled, yields a house that is filled with many rare and beautiful treasures. A life of faith can't be faked. 
there are no shortcuts to a life of faith. You can't fool someone to believing that you live by faith. You either trust God or you don't. James tells us that a man who doesn't believe is uh, unstable in all of his ways. He shouldn't believe that he has anything. A life of faith can't be faked. A life of faith is willing to take a kingdom risk. Think about Jonathan and the, the Philistine raiders. He attacks with his armor bearer. Uh, he uh, attacks and defeats them, one man against thousands of Philistine raiders. We learn that there are 30,000 Philistines up on top of this hill in Michmash. And Jonathan climbs, scales the wall, and presents himself to them. And the Lord gives deliverance from the Israelites by his faith-initiated risk. Think of David challenging Goliath. Think of Peter walking on water. Think of Elijah taking on the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. A life of faith takes kingdom risk. I'll tell you, a life of faith has the best stories. Have you ever heard somebody describe how God has provided for them to the exact penny that they needed or at the exact moment they cried out or at the exact time? I can think even in this moment of dozens of stories from saints uh, who live a life of faith, how God has provided for them or dealt with them or spoken to them or delivered them or saved them at just the right moment. Uh, I saw one uh, friend of mine that I um, had the opportunity to present the gospel to uh, maybe six years ago. I, I saw her yesterday and, and I was reminded of her story of faith. She, I presented the gospel to her on a Sunday and challenged her as a lost person to put her faith in Jesus. And as I would normally do, I would normally issue an invitation. You can do that right here and right now in our office. But I didn't. And I was kind of surprised at myself that I didn't ask her, would you like to trust Jesus now? But I didn't. And she left and I thought, oh, you blew it there. She was supposed to get saved. God gave you the chance. You were supposed to present the gospel to her. Two days later, she called me and she said, you'll never believe what happened last night. And I said, well, tell me. And she said, um, I, for some reason, I could not sleep. And I, I finally fell asleep at 10 o'clock, but your words were kind of ringing in my ears. And I, I just said, no, I don't want to believe right now. I don't want to believe. And she fell asleep. And she says, the next thing I know, I was awakened, dead awake, completely alert. I looked over at my clock and it said 316. I grabbed the Bible that you had given me six months ago that had sat on my night shelf there collecting dust. I picked it up and I just opened it, turned on my light. And the verse that came up as I opened it was John 316. I looked at my clock, 3.16. I read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I felt the overwhelming presence of God and I yielded my life to Christ in that moment. A life of faith has stories like that where God chooses to work through impossible circumstances and impossible details, weaving all things together so that those who believe look up and find a ram caught in a thicket at just the right moment, at just the right time, at just the right point so that their faith 
is realized. Think about Peter in jail about to be killed after James is killed, surrounded by soldiers when an angel wakes him up and delivers him through one gate, through another gate, and out into the city streets where a group of people are gathering, praying for his release, and he's released. Or Paul in chains in Philippi when an earthquake hits and everybody's chains are released and every door swings open. And no one leaves as the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself because he thought he lost all the prisoners. And as a result of them all being there, Paul shares the gospel with him and his household is saved. They return to prison and Paul is escorted out of town the next day by all the authorities. God orchestrates details that heighten emotion and deliver tension. He's the greatest author you will ever read. He is an artist who works details in such a way so that each individual who is saved is saved in a unique way that you don't have to, you don't have to manipulate the circumstances to get God to do what you want. You don't have to force the gospel on anybody. If God chooses to save someone, the, the circumstances will work out and unfold exactly according to his plan. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch traveling back to Africa, happens to be reading in Isaiah on his chariot when God tells Philip, hey, go run next to the chariot. He orchestrates the speed to match Philip's running ability so that he gets just within earshot as he reads Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And Philip is uh, uh, prompted to ask him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone can explain it to me? And Philip says, well, I can explain it to you. And he climbs up in the chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch says, who is the suffering servant? Who's he talking about, himself or someone else? And beginning with that very verse, Philip is able to lead him to faith in Jesus on his way back to his home country. And the eunuch is so moved by the gospel that he says, stop the chariot, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized right this moment? That's the God that we serve. A life of faith is pleasing to God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. A life of faith gives God all the glory because we can take absolutely no credit for the work that he does. And the most important part about faith, a life of faith gives God the most important yes. Yes, you may have my life, Yes, my days and my life are yours and at your disposal, and you can do with me as you choose. And you sign as though it were a blank piece of paper and slide it over to God and say, you, you fill in the details. I'm done manipulating. I'm done trying to live for myself and live my life the way I want to. My life is yours, signed and sealed. You take it and you live it and fill in the details as you desire. For many of you, that's terrifying. But when you see the unfolding plan of God through redemptive history for thousands of years that can enable Jesus to be crucified and to breathe his last at exactly the right second to fulfill his plan, why do you worry? Why are you anxious? Jesus said, why do you worry about what you're gonna eat and what you're gonna put on? I take care of birds. 
Why are you worried? Don't be anxious about your life. Do you worry today that God doesn't see you? He does. He counts your tears. Do you worry that God can't forgive you? Are you greater? Is your sin greater than that which Jesus can conquer on the cross? Why do you hold your own sin against you when Jesus said, freely forgiven? As far as the east is from the west is as far as I cast your sin from my presence. I don't remember it. Is your sin greater than Jesus' sacrifice? Do you worry that you're beyond redemption? You're not. Is there breath in your lungs? You can give your life to Jesus. Are you concerned that God is overly quiet and not active enough in your life? John Piper says that God is always doing 10,000 things all around us, and you may be aware of one or two at any given time. He is actively weaving the tapestry and all the details of your life so that it amounts to a life that gives him glory as you are yielded and walking by faith. Are you worried that God doesn't have you in the palm of his hand? It says, no one can snatch you from my hand. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Don't let something small like a global pandemic tank your faith. Pharaoh would say to you, just one plague, right? I went through 10, ten plagues. And you just have one? Don't allow your faith to fail. Continue to fan into flame that which God has begun in you because he who began a good work in you will do what? He will finish it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Walk by faith, not by sight. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your desire for us to walk in such a way that proves that we are your children not because we can see all the details unfolding, but often because we can't see your hand at work. You cause us to trust in you and to believe in you and to walk with you in such a way that you receive the glory for the work that you do in our lives. Would you forgive us when we doubt? Would you forgive us when we worry and when we're filled with anxiety unnecessarily? Would you help us to see that from the very beginning, the plan of redemption has unfolded exactly the way you wanted it. And if you can ordain the greatest plan for saving sinners in human history while also orchestrating a man carrying a water jar who can be followed by two disciples, who could be led to the master of a house who could already have prepared an upper room furnished and fully ready, if you can work in the smallest details as well as the greatest details, surely we can give you the thing that is troubling us today. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.